Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the first things I noticed when I first discovered behavioral science was that when I gave talks about marketing and advertising, I got invited to marketing and advertising conferences. When I started talking about behavioral economics, I got invited to 10 Downing Street. Hi, I'm Julia Steinvorth. And I'm Maddie Croucher. And we're the hosts of this podcast. This week, Pete Dyson, one of our senior behavioral strategists, sat down with Celia Harrison, previously with Transport for London's customer strategy team. Many of our London-based listeners will be familiar with Holborn Underground Station in the centre of London. It's one of London's busiest underground stations, with 33 million passengers going through it every year. And it has the second longest escalator at a height of 23 metres. Celia led a project last year for TfL that proved a little controversial among passengers. The principal aim was to increase escalator efficiency, that is, to carry more passengers out of the tunnels in less time. Their approach had mathematical theory on their side, but they faced a formidable challenge in the highly culturally ingrained habits of the typical London commuter. Listen now as Pete chats with Celia about the project, the motivation to get it started, what they experienced during the trial, and a special philosopher's game developed by Pete called What Would Kant Think? Pete starts off by asking Celia to describe why Holborn specifically was selected for the escalator project. There was a lot of reasons. The uh, staff had been um, very concerned about the safety on the escalators and the crowding um, because the two lines that go through Holborn, the Piccadilly and the Central, both of them had an adjacent station that was closed to um, exit traffic, which meant that extra customers were coming in who wanted to get off at either Covent Garden or Tottenham Court Road. So there was a massive increase in customers exiting in the morning and the flow was so impeded they were concerned that somebody might be pushed into an oncoming train while trying to exit the platform or that another safety related incident might happen. Um, So that kind of was how Holborn came to be presented to the escalator safety strategy. And um, it was in tandem with the, um, the, the work being done by Phil Harley, who was the head of that group, on different nudges for improving escalator safety. Um, so we were kind of looking at a whole range of safety strategies. Um, he had done a bit of work on the height of escalators and standing on both sides. So he was the person who, at Canary Wharf, found out that at a 10 metre rise, it made no difference because people just walked up. It wasn't going to make better use of the escalators at that height. And then Paul Stoneman um, did some further um, extrapolation of data and um, predicted the curve that we actually proved to be true with the trial, um, but above about 18 metres um, of vertical rise of escalator, people tended not to walk up and the um, fall off of people walking was, that height was the, the, um, the best height to start trying to impose it because uh, fewer people were walking and it was a better use of space to have people stand on both sides. 
Okay. And for our international listeners who might not be familiar with the underground or what happens in London, can you describe what happens on a typical London escalator and why this trial might have had any hope in um, making the escalators better? Um, well, uh, I can speak about Holborn because every station, even if it's only 500 metres away from another one, has a very different character. Um, so the Holborn is a busy station with two lines going in. Um, it has a busy interchange, um, which customers cross over at the bottom of the escalators where we were carrying out this experiment. Um, the four escalators where we were carrying out the experiment um, in the mornings, one's entrance only because very few people go in at Holborn. Um, going out, those three escalators, when both um, you've got four platforms, when trains come in all at the same time, the volume of customers is such that um, it's like a hundred a minute going out. It's it's very very busy. Um, when we had people standing on both sides, it was completely blocked in. When we had that number of trains coming in at the same time, and you would find people crowding at the bottom of the escalators to get on, even so, with um, pass the passages going back down to the platforms also um, completely full, the slow shuffle moving forward. Um, of course, it does vary with uh, the gaps in the service, the numbers of trains coming in, how busy it is at any time, but if you average it out, you're, you're talking about thousands of people over an hour exiting the station in the morning. The tradition on the London Underground is mm -hmm. that you stand on the right and you walk on yes. the left. Now I found something really interesting about that, about how that came to happen, because if you look online, people argue about it, about how it started and you know why we do it and why have other countries started to copy it, which they have. Um, guess once you've got something that works why not do it. Apparently the first escalator that they built on the underground um, it didn't have what we call cones which are the bits that the, the grooves of the escalator steps go into. They have cones like um, that go into those grooves which um, stops things becoming trapped too easily so it sort of slides up. The original ones first one there, didn't, the first escalator didn't have that. It kind of um, came off at an angle. So um, you would have a, a rail on, say, your right-hand side, and on the left, you actually had to go further to get off the escalator because the wall came round like a triangle. So your exit was actually on the right. I don't know if I'm describing this in a way that is clear enough for people who are listening rather than watching my hand actions. So people on the left had to go further to get off, so they would be walking to keep in time with the people on the right. The reason it was built that way was because it was the only place they could put it was in a kind of a corner. <laughs> so they, they, it wasn't a design choice, it was like, where can we put this? Oh, we're going to have to make that 
where you exit on the right because there isn't space to let people off going straight ahead. Once so they designed no, it, they copied the same design. So there was no mastermind designer. This wasn't the artifact of a, of a psychologist or the work of an engineer. It was no, just... it, it wasn't planned. That was just how the escalators were built at the beginning. Crowding wasn't an issue so much then. And I think the, the first reference was in the 20s, about um, 20s or 30s. You start seeing posters saying, you know, stand on the right, walk on the left. Mm -hmm. It would be great if you could explain um, the theory behind why an escalator would be more efficient if pe both people stood on the left and on the right, rather than people walked up on the left-hand side. Okay, well, um, particularly on higher escalators, you tend to get bigger gaps between walkers because people are a bit inhibited by how high the escalator is. So the more gaps you have between walkers, the fewer steps are being used and um, there comes a point in time where um, no matter how fast people walk you're not utilising that space um, enough so you, you can put more people through through having them stand on the escalator. For shorter escalators where you've got lots of people walking and fewer gaps this model doesn't work very well. But on the higher escalators, where there's bigger gaps and less space used, um, th this is a, a better use of space. Part of the, the trial at Holborn, I mean, there are a whole series of conditions that had to be met, which is why we chose Holborn when we did. And part of it's to do with the height of the escalator, you know, because once it's a certain height, people, the, the number of people walking up falls off. And it's not because it's too far, it's because they look up and they think, I can't walk the whole way up and nobody's going to let me stand on the right. There's not going to be enough space. Can't pull in. Yeah, yeah so yeah. And unless they know they can walk the whole way, they don't attempt it. And you've know, got some very nice graphs that show the fall off. Um, so I, th I think it's everything, anything above about um, 18 metres and the um, escalator rise at Holborn is 24. So. But at the time that we started this trial, uh, there was, um, now where was it, Tottenham Court Road on the Central was closed and Covent Garden on the Piccadilly was closed. Everybody's coming by Holborn and they were really concerned about the safety of that many extra customers coming through in the mornings. So, you know, so it was also perfect for us because it meant we got extra customers and we could see if the flow really did work mm -hmm. and the, the prediction that um, we move more customers but not necessarily individuals. That's the big yeah. uh, tension where individually I'll think I can get out faster if you let me walk yeah. but collectively I have to be thinking collectively to see the benefit of if we all stand more of us get out yeah. quicker. So if they, if they could see what we see mm -hmm. on an operator station because yeah, we have cameras we'd stand there and we'd watch. Um, before we were going in there on the central line, if you had a train come in and empty, you would get people queuing on the platform to get to the exit, to come up the steps, to walk along the passage, to get on the escalators. Um, that queue went down dramatically when we were running the trial, but people didn't experience that as being quicker because 
what they thought that the one thing they had control over was whether they could walk up or not is their control rather than what we want them to do. We did actually try explaining this when people were getting angry mm -hmm. about it and uh, they just said that's rubbish, that's not true, that's not how it works. And you could, it was interesting because um, I think The Guardian on their own online version they did a, a little computer model dots representing people showing the difference yep. between the two and it's quite visual and common sense gone no no this is rubbish it's not true it's... The comments were fantastic the number i was really interested in was what how many people were how many people were walking up beforehand um so is it in a normal time how many people do we see choose two. to walk because if it's it seems to me to make quite a big difference it, Having travelled on the escalator, as I say, ballpark, it seems yeah. like it's about a quarter of the people decide to walk. Um, Basically, mm. this graph is, um, that's the vertical height. Yeah. So the higher it is, the less people Passengers walk. willing to walk. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, so it's at 40%. It's 40 actually, yeah. yeah. And as you get to 30, it's, once you get to 30 metres, it's just no one's going to, it looks enormous. Yeah. What are we at there, like... Um, Angel, mm. yeah, but then yeah. So there, there's certain conditions that have to be met before you can can do that in terms of safety, and also in terms of how your customers are going to behave. So we had the three escalators, and the first week we um, had uh, only one escalator standing on both sides. Yeah, and for the first week there was a lot of tweeting. They were very angry people. And uh, the second week we had two, and um, it was a really interesting pattern, and the tweets reflected it. So when you made the change, the first day they were very angry. You know, what on earth is going on? And very frank language. And uh, then, so by about the end of Tuesday, beginning of Wednesday, they were getting used to it and calming down. By the end of the week, almost nothing. Start the next week another change on the Monday, Tuesday, and then gradually working its way down to the Friday with almost nothing. On the third week, where we had all three up escalators, a stand on both sides only, we kind of, it's still the same pattern, but the comments we were getting were more along the lines of, if only you'd left one escalator for us to choose to walk up mm -hmm. if we wanted to, we wouldn't care. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting how quickly they get used to the change and um, accept it, but if you leave them a smidgen of choice at the end, it makes them much more accepting of what you're imposing. Yes. So I liken it a bit to the carrier bag thing, where people were, you know, the 5p charge on the carrier bags, where people were outraged and angry and, you know, so, and now, I told you I live in Qatar now, I can tell you in the supermarket who's British because they won't accept carrier bags. No, no, I've got my own bag. Well, I can manage without. Yeah, very, very interesting. How you change people? You know, sort of that that mixture of a little bit of imposition and a little bit of choice seems to be kind of the best way. And of course, all of the the stuff by Paul Dolan is very interesting too because. Um, you know, sort of the bit where you're not even asking them, you're just giving them nudges, as he calls it. Yes. Mm. That's interesting. So, you've seen the blue footprints. Yeah. 
because that's a really interesting example of a nudge. Because people are free to choose to do it or there's no penalty for them not doing it? Well, there's no instructions. They just, they don't even notice it, I don't think, half the time. They just get on and automatically stand on the footprints. They don't think about it. It's, it's a deeply subconscious reaction. Um, and part of that, that series of trials as well, it's by a guy called Phil Hardy, really interesting stuff. Um, sort of messages embedded in the handrail for the escalators, things like hold me or hands, just handprints. You know, people kind of like that stuff. Um, I think in, in the, the short version, um, the most effective um, things that got people to actually stand on both sides with no staff, which was the final experiment, um, was a combination of the blue footprints and um, you know, sort of all the nudgy stuff, but they wouldn't do it unless there was a voice as well. So at the very beginning of the, the part two trial, the hologram didn't work first couple of days. Her volume was really, really low and she was a bit faint. And um, we found that it was only when a PA was made from the control room saying, you know, we're doing this experiment, stand on both sides, please be good. As soon as they heard the voice, they'd comply. And um, if they didn't, if they, they were doing an announcement every three to five minutes, and it was really visible, you know, sort of the, the difference between the two. Um, there was also an element, I think, in there of uh, validation um, that everybody could hear the request to stand on both sides. So people didn't feel that they were wrong. Whereas on part one, we got an awful lot of if people were standing on both sides and could well on the left and somebody wanted to walk up and they managed to completely not hear or see any of the flagged information and people speaking to them, they would actually go up and say, get out of my way. Mm -hmm. And that was a polite version of what some of them were saying. <laughs> um, it's probably very emotional. Yeah, because of course the psychology of how people think about uh, what they need to do mm -hmm. is a second order effect of thinking do, the other, do these other people know that I've heard this? Or can I be confident that they've also received the same information? Which is probably why the authority over the tannoy means that you know everybody else has heard this. Yes, yes, there is that. Yeah. Yeah. I also have a, a theory from having watched people on the underground for many years that um, people kind of on autopilot. It's, you know that whole thing about you spend so much of your life being unconscious, you know, so when you're travelling on the same route every day, you're not actually particularly conscious. So if somebody disturbs your route or your routine, it's like waking somebody up suddenly mm -hmm. and they get quite angry. Why are you doing this? Nobody told me anything, even though you've heard things. Um, and I, I think the walking up is part of that routine. I always walk up, why can't I walk up, get out of my way? And there were a couple of incidents where people were physical, which was really distressing. How, did you do any, or have you seen any research before this on people?
people's uh, preferences and their, the, I suppose, the psychology behind why anyone would want to walk up the escalators? Um, is it part of, uh, you say, a daily routine, but is it embedded in some people's sense of identity and their health and wellness that they are, they like the exercise? So, no, because this didn't start off as a, an, an academic exercise, it was just a practical trial to see if we could find a, a cheap, safe way to increase capacity. You know, we, we haven't got the finances on the underground to start knocking down walls and make bigger spaces to put extra escalators and stuff like that. So this is a very low cost. And um, if it had worked, which it did, very effective way of doing something quick and easy. So yes, of course we have to take that public money and so on. Um, However, on some of the tweets and the comments we got, <laughs> uh, this is my only exercise, how dare you take it away from me? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so being as we do this all day, every day, watching them and standing there and counting them and everything like that, um, Paul Stoneman, my colleague who is going to be here today, um, he did quite a lot of timing, like, how long it took to walk from here to here. And um, I think the total time to walk up the escalators is 25 seconds or 30 seconds. So you're saying that's your only form of exercise is 30 seconds of walking up an escalator. I really don't think this is going to change your life to stand on both sides. I mean, it's quite harsh, but I don't think that was really what they meant. That was their conscious mind saying this is my rationale for doing it and it's reasonable of me to justify my anger by saying this. Ah, so you would call that a post-rationalisation then? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm angry, why am I angry? It's my exercise. <laughs> yeah, so, it's been yeah. said that intuition comes first yeah. and strategic reasoning comes second. Yes. So you feel something morally and your moral radar goes off and then you may give a reason to tag that. Yeah. In this case, maybe it's lifestyle and healthiness. Yes. Well, there's been an awful lot of um, yes, publicity. I think Public Health England have been really promoting, you know, sort of, don't stand still, walk. And that was actually going on in parallel to what we were doing. We go, hey, what are we trying to say to people? You didn't here? have a, you didn't have a <laughs> change for life campaign running on the billboards in uh, the station, did you? No, we didn't. But um, <laughs> you know, we we were approached by Public Health England to do a trial about walking up escalators. So you know, we were kind of thinking actually, this, although it it appears really contradictory, and given how much time the underground, how many hundred years or more. We've spent training people to stand on one side and walk on the other to try and divide that up, saying, no, no, actually on this escalator, you can stand on both sides. And then this one, we want you to walk. Please do walk. Um, so they need to be the shorter escalators. So places like Canary Wharf, which have 10 metre rise, which is way down on the scale, lots and lots of people walk on them. And so that's a perfect place to say, please do walk. Um, it keeps everybody moving, everyone's happy, there's enough space to stand on one side if you want to. And they've got an awful lot of escalators, 22 escalators there. So, you know, so it's good to give choice. So what we were thinking originally with the, the whole in one, 
money was a bit of an issue there was about actually branding it. I wanted to have different colour handrails, you know, that immediately says this escalator is different from all the others. But, you know, they go, no, it's only a trial, but handrails are expensive, we can't do that. Maybe in the long term that is a way forward, but you know, sort of just making it visibly different. Just it, it still qual it would it was only done on one escalator, right? There was it was all three, so there there so was no option of walking. Yes, there was. There was so okay. The the way the first trial went was three weeks. Week one was just one standing on both sides, but it was our busiest escalator, and then um, it, it's quite complicated, you know, because you get different feeders from mm -hmm. different lines, so. Escalator number seven, which is the one on the right, um, is the busiest escalator, and that's fed by customers from the central line. And then escalator number five takes most of the customers from the left, which is bigger than line customers. And then number six kind of gets a bit of both, depending on how full the other two are. And uh, I can't even remember where I was going with that. They were, you started with just the uh, number oh, seven? The yeah, seven. Then the second week was six and seven. And the third week was all three up escalators. Okay. So eventually you were, uh, it became... Mandatory. Mandatory, yeah. You okay. call it a step, a step wedge design. You gradually increase and you introduce more and more. Yeah, but there, there were other um, contributing factors in there. So. For the last week, where we went to, to three, um, Covent Garden had reopened, so we were getting fewer Piccadilly Line customers coming off. And we were also approaching Christmas, so any few extra customers for Christmas shopping. You know, so it, it was kind of a, a balancing thing. Yeah. It okay, good. It's yeah. just interesting for the nudge versus shove audience, I think. Well, I think, yeah. But it, I'm, yeah, I'm a bit of a fan of the nudging stuff, mm -hmm. but figuring out a, a good way to do it is, you know, sort of a, an appropriate way for, for, for whatever you're trying to do is the challenge. Mm. And to be clear, once all escalators are standing only, that's no longer a nudge, that's yeah, a, man a mandatory thing, yeah. or something that has a financial penalty to it. Yeah. Um, so that's a fairly uh, that's a policy lever. Well, one of the things that was quite interesting, um, sort of in in those terms, was because trains have gaps between. You you get it's never constant. Yes, you know, sort of, in fact, it worked best when it was constant, because people could kind of see it was a lot more rational about why you were doing it. So we would if if we had a gap between the trains, you get gaps on the escalator and then people would start walking up to fill those gaps. Which was good of them, for yeah. them and also for yeah. capacity. But there was also some people going, but you're not meant to walk. Why not? If there's space there, so long as they're not pushing people out of the way, why would we mind? You know, because they're moving up, making a bit more space. It's more effective use of space. It's more just not dedicating one part of the escal escalator, but only people are walking. 
but that that was interesting in terms of people's minds you know that they're thinking you're saying stand on the both side don't walk oh dear there's space in front of me or, oh they're doing the wrong thing mm. it's quite interesting yeah. it's fascinating because at the heart of what we're talking about is a whole yeah. element of psychology of queuing and it can be amazingly counterintuitive yes so it's been shown that in supermarkets it's actually much more efficient to have a queue yes. you'd much if you go shopping what you want to find is to arrive at the checkout and for someone to already be there yes. because if they're not the trouble is you arrive you unload your trolley yeah. and if there's no queue whatsoever then they you cannot you, they start pushing things through before you can get round yeah. so you need some amount of time and queue to control your own flow yes um, so we find this with uh with work in other queuing environments it'd be fascinating to know if you've worked or seen any insights from elsewhere from um from shopping malls to sports events music concerts uh, on how they manage passenger flow or, or customer flow there um i do tend to tend to to look i've just come back from paris on the eurostar and i love eurostar big fan it's a train <laughs> but the way they manage their flows on the, the Paris side is quite interesting because they have two, they tend to have um, a staggered service. So they've got um, a train leaving very soon and one leaving quite, after, quite soon afterwards. But they take people in at the same time and there's two entrances and two sets of queues, but the signage is not very good and you know they don't actually manage how fast people go through the ticket gates so you get so what our experience was was we went through an automatic gate and the queue was right up to it so people were thinking should i go through or shouldn't i and you've got people behind going go through go through so it's a lack of movement then you go through and they've got the, the snake queues but what you don't quite notice because there's no signage at the front, is that one is for EU and one is for every, everybody else. So really, they, the signage and the flow should be a bit better. You know, move those gates back a bit and close the gates when the snake is level with it or something like that, just so that people get the chance to see where they've got to go and what they've got to do. You know, so a little slow movement, people tend to be happier with that rather than um, zooming up and being stuck still somewhere. You know, if you, if you get people shuffling forward, they're much, much happier than they are if they zoom and stop and wait. So you'd say wait. your yeah. insight is people like to see consistent, assistant progress? They, they like to feel that they're moving. And it may be that it's much faster to rush through and then stop and stand still for 20 minutes but it feels better to them that they're moving slightly. Yes. It's been shown elsewhere that um, even on the tube that one of the best interventions was the, um, was the installation of the dot matrix display boards uh, oh, yes. to say how soon a train is going to come because the nature, minutes, yes. <laughs> the nature of a weight is not, its, uh, not necessarily its length but the level of uncertainty and what you're able to do yeah. while waiting. Yeah. and being held in um, sort of purgatory, yeah. not knowing if the tube is one minute away or six minutes away means you can't occupy that time doing anything yes. other than saying, 
Where's my, my tube? Train. Where's yes. my train? Yeah. Yes. I know that the, one of the, um, I think the next big challenge for the underground, apart from crowding, is stopping people from jumping on trains where doors are closing. Yeah, that, that I think is the next serious big challenge to, that they're going to have to deal with. It's really interesting. And of course, those of us that travel compare the whole time. So in Paris, you know, sort of their tones are different. You know, so we, we get a big horn, and as soon as it stops, the doors close. But you know, the horn stops before it closes. Um, and they are very violent doors. Um, on the underground, you've got lots of different stock, and the chimes are different on different kinds of stock. So there's no consistency between different kinds of trains. And um, some of them sort of make noises and carry on until the doors are halfway shut, and others do, you know, because it's not the same. And on top of that, you just put something in that, that blocks the door from closing. Um, it will either stop and hold still, or it will reopen, and people know that. You, you, you get a, a, a real pattern of people standing there with their foot in the door, smiling and waiting for nice young ladies to run onto the yes. train. So that there is a, a, a definite identification of young men doing that when they see a young lady. Oh, really? Yes. I thought it would be fun to play a game, given that we're in London, yeah. Um, uh, a game where we look at uh, different influential, um, I think, political philosophers, but fa famous, um, notable thinkers, yes. and what they're what they've got to contribute to this escalator trial because it's fascinating that it raises so many really quite deep issues. So and the first emotional think, issues. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so the, the first we've got. Um, He's not too far away from UCL, uh, just a mile or two up the road, would be Jeremy Bentham, who coined the term, was famous for applying utilitarianism, which is oh, the yes. most good for the most people. Yes. Um, do you think that the trial applies, Was its mandate was because it would help the most people? Do you yes. think that's fair? Yes, I think that's fair indeed. Yes, we, we were certainly not as accommodating for individual wishes um, we would like to be. But I think the whole of the underground has to be that way because one person's wish could actually um, be a serious detriment to many others. Mm -hmm. And in this case, by standing on the left, you ended up, you increased efficiency by 30%. Yes. So you got, uh, I think, uh, on a normal escalator, you'd have 115 people every minute. Yeah. Um, but by getting people to stand on both sides, you get 151 people a minute. So about a 30% increase. Yes. Which you said tallied almost exactly with your predictions that you'd run the numbers for, which yes. is, must have been um, indicating. Yes. We were really a bit surprised because when we, we started the trial off, we were thinking, people aren't going to want to do this and they're going to object this we, we, we were a bit concerned for the safety of our staff and um, it was one of the conditions that if we did this that if anything went wrong we would stop mm -hmm. because we didn't want to risk that 
Well, that leads us on neatly to our second big name, um, which is John Stuart Mill, who coined the harm principle, among many other things, which says, the only purpose for which power can be rightly exercised over any member of a civilised community against his or her will is to prevent harm to others. So you should, you, the greatest mandate for doing something is if you're preventing harm to other people. Yeah. Well, given that, that this all came from the, the concern for safety, yes, I think we can agree on that. Yes, moving people safely and quickly out of the station is the, the mandate. So. And it seems like there's a second level at which the people that would want to walk up are causing harm, not physical harm, but they're causing, they're, they're causing a problem for the people standing on the right because they're slowing down. The act of walking up slows the overall escalator so all the standards have to queue up at the bottom. Um, yeah, that that's true. That is true. I, I think harm is maybe a, a strong word. You know, so causing a slight detriment to mm -hmm. other people. But the potential for harm, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, let's see if we can uh, run through any more people. Um, Emmanuel Kant, so not unfortunately based in London, but it would be great if he was, um, argued that participation in civil society is undertaken not for self-preservation, but as moral duty. Did you feel like people were fulfilling any moral duty uh, in complying? No. <laughs> so it's a short answer. What do you mean by that? Um, I felt that uh, it was a very individual response. People were doing it for their own benefit. Their journey, their travelling, they've paid for it. They're going to do what they want. You know, so if they want to stand, they can stand. It, it, the, those who wanted to walk were very vocal about it being their right, their entitlement. There was a lot of feeling of entitlement doing what they So you feel people have internalised some kind of their, their self-determination and as though as a member of society it was their personal right to be able to walk up steps. Yes, that's what they said. It's their right. I'll just do the fourth, our fourth and final um, influential name. Um, Frederick Hayek, who argued that central planning was always going to be inefficient because members of central bodies could never know enough to match the preferences of the consumers or, or workers that it was designing for. Well, there's, there's elements of truth in that, but we live in a world where um, statistics and the average person is how all decisions are made, and there is no such thing as an average person. There's just a, a, a generalisation where you try to please as many people as you can. Yes, so it sounds like the whole drive behind this project is to get the right behaviour for the most people, and that means making some compromises. It's been a fascinating insight into actually how you apply behavioural science, and in fact just generally how you apply new thinking uh, in a real world setting, and all the messiness uh, and realities that that comes with. Thanks very much for joining us today, Celia. Thanks, Celia and Pete. It's great to hear from somebody on the inside of a major public works behavior change project. We'll post the animated model Celia mentioned to our blog, 
o-behave.tumblr.com so you can see the visualization of the escalator efficiency map. We post regularly on our blog about something interesting we found in the world of behavioral science. You can also follow us on Twitter at OglevyChange and like us on Facebook. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsor, SoundLounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways. Thanks for listening.